He was once asked, how do you treat others? And he said, there are no others. Get inspired. Transform your life. Welcome to Best Interest Radio. So today on the podcast, we have Olivier Veal. Now, we recorded this almost a year ago when I was living in my cottage in Shediac that I was renting, and uh, it was just an awesome time and great conversations. In fact, there was a point where I, I stopped to get the chicken out of the oven, and we had a conversation about his time with uh, Mr. Moy, which maybe we'll do a separate podcast with, but the stories that Olivier has and... Um, everything he has to share is just always so interesting, so fascinating and captivating. And I hope you guys really enjoyed this one. The audio quality isn't as good as it is now, of course, because this was done so long ago and everything improves with age when we put effort into it. Um, but needless to say, Olivier is one of the most inspiring, um, fascinating, interesting people that I know just from the things that he's done and his total demonstration of living and being i mean the guy's 50 looks like he's 30 and has the knowledge of an 800 year old so here it is hope you enjoy all right so we're sitting here with olivier and uh olivier i happened to meet one day in passage uh which is a boutique store in Moncton, new brunswick and uh he happened to tell me briefly about his story of how he helped remove the fluoride from the Moncton water, um, which is called Safe Water Moncton. If you wanted to look that up online, you just... SafeWaterMoncton.com. Okay. Anyways, and we also had an interesting conversation about Weston A. Price and the, they call it the teeth diet and the optimal diet for human teeth. And uh, Well, I think it's more just a compilation of research gathered on traditional like eating habits around the world from communities who were still consuming their traditional diets this is 1930s research so these are communities that were sought out around the world and it shed a lot of insight on the importance of uh, fat soluble vitamins like vitamin a vitamin d vitamin k2 from foods um so weston a price yeah he did a lot of work on uh, helping people better understand what humans tend to consume when given the choice and the degree to which animal foods um, are prioritized um, by humans or or were prior to the industrial or prior to the uh, in the 1930s, let's just say. And, um, and also he shed a lot of light on how plant-based foods were prepared through soaking, through sprouting, all kinds of uh, practices to really m- minimize any of the toxins, any of the anti-nutrients that these foods contain, and also maximize nutrient absorption. That's that's how I would put it. Weston A. Price. Yeah, that's a good explanation of it. So, yeah, when I ran into Olivier for the brief 10, 15 minutes we saw each other, I learned about his work with Safe Water Moncton and... I learned a little bit about Weston A. Price, and so I went home and did some research, and that was actually, um, that research is what led me to uh, choose the right diet in order to heal my intestinal permeability 
which we'll probably talk about more on another podcast. But for today, I'd like to know more about your history and your background and kind of what your story is to where you started and some maybe interesting things along the way, experiences that maybe were profound that taught you a lot in order to bring you to where you are today. So you kind of just start with anything that comes to mind, the first thing, if you, if you wanted to. Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind is it's a real uh, pleasure to be here with, with you, Jordan. Um, Thank I'm, you. You're, this is a beautiful house, beautiful home here in uh, Shediac, Parley Beach area. We, we were going to go in the water before the podcast. It's the month of December. And I have a feeling we're still going to go after the podcast, but yeah. we chose to uh, to focus on the podcast, get that done. But uh, it's nice to be here with you in the countryside. Um, we've been talking about doing this for a while, getting to know each other better. And uh, both of us have a real interest in podcasts and uh, basically putting, you know, what we feel is, I guess, content that could be of value to other people out on the internet. Um, we are two amongst an increasing number of people who are, you know, using video and audio and just using the internet to try and, and, and share, hopefully, uh, information that can really help people. And, and I think we both seem to uh, agree that, you know, to help people is to empower them, is to really give people um, I always say principle-based practices to help them really, you know, not be so dependent on anyone, like whether they're from an alternative health care, you know, or allopathic Western medicine, like people, people need to, people are, you know, it's always better to teach people how to fish than to give them fish, right? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, so you wanted me to talk a little bit about my my background, my where I where I've been, how I've gotten to where I'm at. That's exactly yeah. I, I mean, I've heard briefly little bits and pieces of maybe your time in the the monastery and your kind of what led you to um, to do that. And along with like, it, I know you've traveled a lot and done a lot of things around the world. So um, let's just start with like. Where did it all begin for you to embark on this journey of uh, not only becoming a you know better version of yourself, but also just in wanting more so like wanting to help people and uh, spreading your knowledge to other people in the world? Sure. Um, yeah, spreading. I don't know if it's my knowledge or if it's just knowledge. Yeah. But uh, well, I guess I mean. It's it's it can be challenging to 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 abbreviate and summarize things, but you know I'm 50 years old. Um, I was born in 1969, month of May, um, and uh, my dad, uh, PhD in physics from France. My mom, uh, writer, philosopher, actress, uh, teacher from Cape Breton. Um, both my parents are are Jewish uh, through birth. Um, the ancestral lineage, uh, interestingly enough, is, uh, you know, mostly um, Russian, Ukrainian, uh, German, like Eastern European Jews as far as like the, the, you know, as far as we've been able to trace it back. Even my mother's mother, Riva, 
who was born in in Palestine, um, Israel-Palestine. She was born there, but her grandfather from Russia, he he uh, he fled Russia due to persecutions in the 1800s, and went to Palestine. So my mother's father, his background, his his ancestors are from the Ukraine area. My mother's mother from Russia, and so on and so forth. So. My dad coming from France to Canada on scholarship for physics uh, meets my mom and uh, they uh, they you know they get it on and eventually one of those uh, one of those lovemaking sessions uh, brought some uh, brought some cells together and gave uh, my consciousness uh, a, a vehicle and uh, you know growing up with my parents as a kid in Moncton, New Brunswick, um, being pretty much the only one of the only Jews uh, in, a, in a predominantly Catholic with, with the French people, it was Catholic. With the English, it was Protestant. Um, no Christmas, you can imagine. You know, not always easy for a kid. But you know, aside from the things that made me unique and sometimes challenged me when it came to socializing. Um, as much as my parents were doing the best they could, and, and, and I'm super grateful to them, and the, and the, more, the older I get, the more grateful I am for everything that they did um, to bring me into this world and, and to, to sustain me. The fact of the matter is my parents had a lot of problems in their own relationship, and so like a lot of middle-class uh, families, you know, in the first world and the developed nations, you know, I grew up with a lot of no, no physical abuse. There was no drugs and alcohol. Um, I just grew up with a lot of stress, um, starting mostly around the age of like four. Um, I'm, I'm really blessed. Like my first two years, my mother was just the most devoted mother you can imagine. And every, all the boxes were pretty well checked. And then, I don't know, their relationship, I mean, I don't want to get into too many details about my parents' relationship, but, like, they, they were having problems, you know, compatibility issues, communication issues. And my mother was starting to get more and more stressed. And, and eventually, by the time I was four, I think she started experiencing, like, sustained depressive episodes. And I'm not saying that that's just because of their relationship with my mom and dad. I mean, there's lots of factors. But let's just say that by the time I was four, five, six, seven, as a young kid... I was living in a house where, you know, for whatever reasons, I often felt insecure. I just felt stressed. And I think I can't put all the blame on my parents. I think the diet was also a factor. This is, this is hindsight looking back. It was the 1970s. And back then, thankfully, uh, you know, we were still eating a lot of whole foods. But, you know, we also had the junk foods. Not as much accessibility to... to, to uh, to the package edible drinkable products as, as kids have today, but still a fair amount. And uh, let's just say that like a lot of kids, I tended to take things personally. Um, I tended to focus on how things affected me and I was suffering, you know? And, um, you know, by the time I was like 12, you know, we had moved a few times, been through different schools and uh, being popular, like, like, you know, if you listen to the writings of Gabor Mate or, or any of the, you know, really respected uh, authorities, or I hate that word, but any of the respected doctors or researchers who really delve deeply into addiction and, 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 
and let's just say emotional trauma or emotional pain, they talk about how if parents, like if children don't feel, the, the less secure um, and bonded children feel with their parents, the more they will seek that from their peers. And that definitely was the case with me. So, you know, I was, you know, really not sure what to think about my parents. I mean, they provided for me, had a place to live, I had food, etc. But I just, emotionally, I was, I, I had been, it had been on and off so many times that I was pretty reluctant to really, you know, bond and connect. So friends and, and popularity started to become more and more of a, of a priority for me. It didn't take long before I tasted alcohol. And uh, by the time I was 14, I had like my first good, like my, my first experience with like being buzzed off Keith's beer law I think it was lager anyway I had like nine of these beers at a party and I just felt so good like I drank them at at a certain pace and I felt so good and um I was sold I mean alcohol marijuana hashish you know hippie types of you know like rock and roll sex drugs rock and roll I wasn't have much sex but but I was 14 although I had fooled around a lot with girls playing doctor and stuff but anyway I was just identifying with like the party scene you know 70s rock and um, I also liked football so I and, and looking back you know there's like a double-edged sword about football because I don't think football or, or you know high impact sports are really good especially for the heads you know, you're, you're, you get a lot of, a lot of micro concussions and, and stuff, but football at least gave me something to focus on and allowed me to develop discipline. So outside the football season, you know, football season, I was very focused. Um, but outside of football season, it was just hedonism, just have a good time, party, party, party. Um, didn't take long before I was getting to have the place, the house to myself. My parents would go rent a cottage not far from here in Chediac, and I would just party, 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 party. I mean, you know, drink, get high, go to the beach. I would work in warehouses. Uh, I would do temp work whenever I, whenever it rained, I would go in and do temp work. And if it was sunny out, I'd go to the beach. And by 11 noon, we were smoking dope and drinking and playing frisbee and swimming. And, you know, that's that was what life was like. By the time I was 18, you know, I started experiencing like the what we could call the the, the you know the, the all that drinking and, and lifestyle was starting to take its toll on me. Um, next thing you know, I'm in university, and uh, university was University of Moncton at first, and I was nobody cared if I went to class anymore. I didn't have anything to rebel against, so I started to apply myself. I got really into human biology. And that led to like a, a health food phase of my life. I already at that time was doing most of the grocery shopping and cooking for the house. So I, I just, the combination of the human biology and human physiology and being the person doing the groceries and mo a lot of the cooking at house really allowed me to start to go into like this health food culture. Um, but then, you know, it didn't take long before I was, the summer came back around and I was partying again, going to rock concerts and, uh, we'd travel to Toronto sometimes, see the Rolling Stones, I remember in 1988. And this was the beginning of 
what turned into bulimia. Um, you know, I was this young, you know, 18, 19 year old um, who knew now new things about food and bio biology, um, but, you know, still liked to party and also take away the booze and the alcohol, take away everything. My default set point was a pretty anxious young man. Um, I know this by looking back, you know, and so like a lot of uh, eating disorder, like a lot of people who've, you know, developed eating disorders, uh, like all anxiety-based disorders, you know, parts of your nervous system are, are, you know, when it comes to anxiety, if you want to get technical, the basal ganglia, it revs high. If you look at a functional MRI or a PET scan, it's revving high for whatever reasons. You're prone to anxiety. Can be very, you can also be very motivated. One person's anxiety is another person's motivation. But anyway, didn't take long where a bunch of factors, many of which I'm not going to mention right now, led to me slowly developing bulimia, where I never made myself puke, but I would kind of binge and, 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 and fast, but not fasting for health reasons, fasting because I wanted to correct things or because I felt guilty or whatever. And, I, and when I'd binge, I'd binge on, you know, like foods. Well, I, I wouldn't even call them foods. I'd binge on very tasty things that, you know, were really not wreaked havoc on my system. Next thing you know, you know, I'm in Ottawa. I'm still studying university. Um, I went down to like 140 pounds at that time in my life. Cigarettes, coffee, trying to control this eating habit. It's obsessive. I would either not care or get obsessive. And uh, eventually I just had enough. I was like, man, I don't know what I'm doing, university, this, that, the other thing. Um, I decided I needed to make a change. I decided I was going to go to Europe and backpack around Europe. Um, fast forward, um, I'm back in Moncton, saving money to go to Europe. Did you feel like the change in environment would uh, help you change the habits that you were portraying at the time? I didn't really know at the time. At the time, like a lot of young people... You know, I, I identified with the idea of like going off into the world, adventure, and you know, the whole idea about finding yourself and stuff. Yeah. Something that I, you know, I once heard Bob Dylan say, life isn't about finding yourself, life is about creating yourself. And I yeah. very much agree with that. So anyway, I'm saving money to go to Europe. Um, and one thing leads to the next, and like my best friends, uh, they all went to Vancouver. Um, and I was like in Moncton, and they were all gone. These were like my best friends. We were like we were like a group of four, four or five that used to really party hard. And a lot of the drinking and the smoking and the music was really what we shared in common. And so a lot of those habits were really, uh, you know, a function of our relationship. And they were gone. And I'm saving money. I had this, I had this focus, like go to Europe, save money, work. And um, I went, and went to this party with these uh, artist types, these... Uh, poets and and uh, I went to this party in Capelet and there was no alcohol no marijuana no hashish and I, I ended up uh, I mean I knew I was going to be I was asked if I wanted to go and and, and I knew that we were going to be um, psilocybin mushrooms at this at this uh, party and I was open to it and I ended up having the most amazing experience I was very lucky because I, I believe that psilocybin and and any of the antigen um, compounds that I really believe that they they definitely have therapeutic p 
potential, incredible therapeutic potential. But I also believe that with with without proper preparation, that they people can have dangerous experiences on yeah. them. So anyway, I had an amazing experience, and I realized a lot of things. And at, at, during that experience, it's hard to put into words, but let's just say that I came to understand deep within me something. Something became very clear about my relationship with alcohol. And I saw that I, I knew within the deepest you know, recesses of my consciousness, I knew in a flash, it's really hard to explain, but I had this awareness move through me. And as this awareness moved through me, I just knew where I was heading with, with my relationship with alcohol. I knew I was heading towards sickness and an early death. Yeah, I can relate. I've had a similar experience where I've realized the same thing, not just with alcohol, but with uh, food and uh, habits and relationships and all that. So yeah, <laughs> it's pretty. It's it's really hard to put into words. And we know that the stats on you know now that there's this renaissance um, happening throughout you know North America and Europe with like Ivy League universities doing research on the therapeutic app, you know the therapeutic potential of potential of of DMT, of psilocybin, of LSD, in you know, in the right context, we know that like helping people free themselves from addictions, it's you know, it's very high percentile. It's quite, it's quite astonishing. But this is you know, this is not just the the medication. It's 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 the whole the whole therapeutic um, protocol. But anyway, in my yeah. case, yeah, like it was like amazing, um, and I also fell in love. Uh, well, I had the yeah. I fell in love with uh, with Patricia that night. Um, it took three months before we became a couple, but I fell in love with this woman that night too. Um, my heart opened, uh, and I I I, I was kind of had like a you know we call almost a, a minor rebirth, like a which is very common to people have these experiences. I was on a pretty high dose, from what I understand too. Anyway, so next thing you know, um, fast forward. I'm in a relationship with Patricia. Totally in love hippie, long hair, not really drinking much anymore. Used to have maybe the odd beer or two, but not really drinking. Still smoking lots of hash and marijuana. I did not, did not move away from that dependency for many years to come. But anyway, and next thing you know, Patricia and I both go to Europe together. Um, we're backpacking around Europe. Um, you know, I was always a, a very independent and very resourceful person and traveling I just, you know, used those skills and developed those skills all the more. And we were uh, moving all around Europe, picking grapes, just doing the backpacking Europe thing um, and, and making our way. You know, we ended up in London at one point. Um, I was working uh, at a photo lab. She was working at a restaurant. And, um, yeah, like we, from, from England, we went to India and you know, I'm skipping lots of details, but you know, next thing you know, it's like 1991, and Patricia and I are flying from London, England, to to Delhi, and we spent we were supposed to spend three months, but we only spent a month a month and a half. Um, that's because Patricia basically decided she got homesick. It had been nine months in all since we had left Canada, but anyway, we were in Europe. Uh, sorry, in India and Delhi in. Uh, God. We were in India and, and uh, Nepal for a month and a half. And I was getting exposed to more and more, you know, esoteric philosophies 
which happens to, you know, even in Europe, I was getting exposed to, to esoteric philosophies, but here I was in India, and I'm getting exposed to a lot of ideas and teachings about, about mind, about body, about spirit, and I'm clicking, like it's just, a, I'm identifying with it big time. And also in the mountains, we're, we're hiking in the mountains in the Annapurna Sanctuary, we went up to 4,100 meters in an eight-day trek, and I had sustained um, very serious injuries to my knees playing football. So I never went into that, but let's just say briefly that uh, when I was 14, I got a serious knee injury to my right knee. And then when I was uh, 17 or 16, 17, I got major damage. I got blown out ligaments to my left knee. I was, I had to go, I, I ended up uh, going through like something like a month and a half of physiotherapy, five days a week. Uh, it's a long story, but my knee was like destroyed. I mean, it was the size of a volleyball by the time I was at the hospital. They were draining blood out of my knee and my ligaments were damaged. And anyone knows anything about ligament damage, it's serious, especially with the knee. It's a very complicated joint. And I had healed enough to because this happened in the preseason game of all things. It was my final year in high school, preseason game. My knee gets blown to bits. Um, I went to physio five days a week at the SAPS with one of Moncton's top physiotherapists. I was healed enough to play the final three games, which included, I think, the semi, it was included the playoffs with a major tape job, and it was great. But until I was in the mountains in 1991, so the, the, the football injury happened in 1987, 88, which is when I graduated. So in fall of 87, in 1991, I'm hiking in the mountains and somehow my knee is healing more than ever because it was always problematic. And not just my knee, but my mind, like the higher I would go in these mountains. And it was cool because we were a group and it allowed me, or it somehow facilitated my ability to hike at whatever pace I wanted. Sometimes I'd be ahead of the group, sometimes I'd be behind the group, or sometimes I'd be with the group. I would talk if I felt like talking, not talk if I didn't feel like talking. And there were days where maybe I'd go three, four, five hours without talking and with almost not thinking. It was amazing. You know, bamboo forests at 2,000 meters in the Himalaya mountains. And something was happening, and I was experiencing a quieting of my mind, the likes of which I probably hadn't experienced, and you know, I probably hadn't experienced since I'd been a, a young infant. Um, it was amazing. And my knees, I was doing this hike, by the way, yeah. in cowboy boots. <laughs> like me and Patricia were hippie types. So my knee was getting stronger and stronger, more and more flexible, less and less pain. And I don't know, that combined with all these other, I, I met a woman from Australia who did Tai Chi. And anyway, next thing you know, we're back in Canada. Um, and uh, we ended up going out west, western Canada. Uh, like a lot of people, we went to Jasper and uh, we're working in the hotels. And me and Patricia eventually broke up. And it was my first major love. I mean, I was engaged to Patricia. Like, I loved Patricia. And I planned to marry Patricia. And we were young and we ended up becoming less and less compatible. And I had a lot of issues. She had a lot of issues. I had a lot of issues. Um, I still have issues. <laughs> but anyway, I had a lot of issues. And we broke up. And I just was hanging out more and more with 
poet types, artist types, hanging out in the mountains. I still smoked marijuana hashish, but I smoked it less abusively. I, I drank practically never. And uh, I don't know, like I started doing Tai Chi with an instructor from Edmonton, and he was a student of Moi Lin Shin, who was the founder of the Taoist Tai Chi Society. And at this point in my life, like ever since the bulimia, I had had major digestive issues. I used to have acid reflux, and I rarely could feel my appetite. Like, like I just, you know, I, I was, I was okay. Like, I, I, it, it didn't. The bulimia only lasted really for about six to seven months. Eventually, I relaxed about it. Yeah. But I just had difficulty with eating and and feeling comfortable with food. And I mean, that was just an extension of my overall predisposition for anxiety. But anyway. Um, so we're in, I'm in the Rocky Mountains, I'm doing Tai Chi, I'm, and, and my whole system's starting to calm down more than ever. And my acid reflux is going away, and I'm starting to really, on a regular basis, feel my body, like feel it deeply. And I'm working with my body. It's not the same as football. It's softer, flexibility, organs, um, nervous system and uh i'm just becoming more balanced um relatively speaking more balanced and i remember one day um i went and i did like an hour and a half practice of, of my tai chi and uh when i was done i looked around and i thought to myself i feel i felt at the time like i had taken a tiny bit of lsd i hadn't but, you know, now that we know that microdosing, microdosing has become quite popular when it comes to psilocybin, LSD, and all this stuff. So microdosing, people can go and look that up for themselves. They don't know what it is. But it's interesting how, like, my Tai Chi practice that day had, I had never heard of microdosing back then. But in my mind, I was like, wow, this feels like I've done, like, a little tiny bit of LSD, even though I hadn't. And I think it speaks to the merit of yogic qigong or, you know, any kind of mind-body practice that's, you know, done in an effective way, you know, allows the nervous system, the endocrine system, that's your hormones, your digestive system, your whole physiology to come into a, a more f optimal state. And uh, that was definitely happening with me. So by now it's like 1992, 1993. Um, tai Chi is becoming more and more a thing for me. The mountains are still a thing for me. Doesn't take long before I'm in Calgary. Uh, at this point, I was in involved with a woman named Donna. She was an amazing singer, mountain biker, alpine climber. And uh, we're living in Calgary, and uh, I'm going to this Taoist Tai Chi club in Calgary. Um, you know, that's my thing. And we, we start climbing together more and more, rock climbing, ice climbing, um, still smoking weed and stuff. I'm, I'm a vegetarian at this point in my life, which is a whole other story, but... Anyway, we're doing our thing. Um, eventually, we break up in like 1993, I guess, 1994. And um, at that point, the mountains, I, I used to struggle back then. Like, should I focus on Tai Chi? Should I focus on climbing? And I ended up focusing on climbing. I got really into climbing and tree planting. Um, living in Canmore, Banff. Uh, didn't take long. I had a motorcycle. I had a van. And... Basically, my life was tree planting, and I still did a bit of Tai Chi, but it was like tree planting and climbing. 
and I had all these goals, you know, and I was like doing, I was like basically backcountry skiing, climbing in the Rocky Mountains or the southwestern USA, uh, Nevada, California, depending on the weather, basically. Like if the avalanche conditions were high in the Rockies, we'd go down south or whatever. So mountaineering, alpine climbing, rock climbing, multi-pitch climbing, backcountry skiing, like that was my thing. Um, and I would go at it so hard because you see, I was deep down inside still an anxious guy. And in a way the climbing like was my, like my new drug. And you know, I had all these climbing partners who would tell me like, man, whenever I go climbing with you, like we always like, we're, we're always going home. It's dark. And it's, you know, it's like, I would just push the envelope. I would rarely take days off. I would get tendinitis, which would give me more opportunity to learn about healing. (laughs) But, um, you know, and it was climbing, 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 and it's really hard to, to sum all this stuff up, but eventually in 1995, um, 1995, Donna, who we were, we were broken up, but Donna and I still kept in touch, and Donna got really sick with hyperthyroidism and Graves' disease. And, you know, you got to remember that I had a background in human biology, human physiology, uh, I had been exposed to a lot of medicinal concepts from India and then through the Taoist Tai Chi Society. And, um, you know, I was like concerned about Donna and I knew that there was a way for her. The doctors wanted to operate. They wanted to take out her thyroid gland. And I was like, whoa. And she was like stabilized on medication. So there was nothing urgent. She could take her time to make her decision. So long story short is I ended up because I loved her, even though we weren't still together, like I still loved her like deeply. I mean, she had been one of the great loves of my life and we were not a couple, but I wanted to do everything I could to help her, you know? And, and so I was found myself saying to her, like, like, why don't we go to Toronto together? I was, I mean, I started off saying like, have you looked into alternative you know, treatments? And I was, I was doing research and finding out that, you know, there were all kinds of people who had, you know, brought their thyroid gland back into a good functional state without an operation and were even medication free. Like it was possible. And um, anyway, long story short is I leave BC one week before what would have been the biggest paying tree planting contract of my career. I would have been tree planting at that time for about two years that that would have been my third year and um i was gonna be making easy 300 bucks a day 1995 that's good money i had no money in the bank (laughs) so donna didn't want to go she was she was tempted but she was scared so the idea was we go to toronto and we go see mr moy from the Taoist tai chi society who i believe to be a very genuine um holistic healer based on everything I learned about him when I was involved with the Taoist Tai Chi Society. And I told her, I said, if he can't help you, I'm sure someone in Toronto can. And once you've exhausted that, if you still want to get the operation, you could get it. And she didn't know what to do, blah, 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 blah. And anyway, finally, it's so hard to explain. I, I still felt this calling myself. Like I'm, I've skipped a lot of details, but I always, even when I was a climber, I was still really, had a lot of identification with like, more of a spiritual whole being cultivation uh lifestyle and it got to the point where it was like i'm gonna go to toronto with or without donna and it was scaring the crap out of me it was really scaring me i had no money 
and I would, you know, and the tree planting contract kept getting delayed because of weather. It was the weirdest, it was the weirdest set of factors. Yeah. I was in Vancouver waiting for a tree planting contract that kept getting delayed. I was seriously considering going to Toronto. Even after Donna, Donna said she wasn't going to go, I found myself feeling like I would go. I would wake up in the morning before I was fully awake and I would have these feelings and these thoughts that I need to go to Toronto not just for Donna, but for myself. I should go and see what Mr. Moy is like myself. What kind of teacher is him? Is he? I used to read a lot of Carlos Castaneda back then, whom I've recently, well, who I eventually came to, f- to discover was a fraud. But anyway, I was identifying with Don Juan Matus, the, the shaman, the, the great teacher in the books. And I felt like Mr. Moy, maybe he was like a real live version of this, you know, in his, in his own way. So next thing you know, I decide one day, I'm like, you know what? I said to myself, I'm supposed to be this free spirit. I'm supposed to be brave and strong and a climber and a mountaineer. And I'm scared to go to Toronto because I don't have much money in the bank. Fuck that. I was like, fuck that. I can always come back. The mountains are not going anywhere. Tree planting is not going anywhere. I'm going. Donna's sick. Maybe she'll come if I'm there. So I drive across the country in record time. It's crazy. (laughs) I get to Toronto. P.S. Side note, by then I'm eating meat again, which that's a whole other story, but it was definitely helping me. I was more of an omnivore back Making then. Making you feel a lot better, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was a lot better. But anyway, I get to Toronto. Excuse me, I'm just having a bit of water here. I get to Toronto, and I'm going to have to really abbreviate that whole thing. But let's just say that one thing led to the next. Donna came. We go to a, a, a Tai Chi class where Mr. Moy was teaching. I mean, he was sort of teaching in the background. He'd sort of have other instructors teach, and he'd just sort of watch. And and I introduce, well, we, well, basically Donna went up to him and asked him if, she, if he could help her. And he asked her a bunch of questions. And next thing you know, he invited her to go to his morning class at the temple where he lived in Chinatown, Toronto. And she went. And she had a really good experience. And then the next day, I went too. And I remember some of the students were like, well, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm with Donna. And they're like, yeah, but like Mr. Moy invited Donna. Like, you know, like this is, this is more of an invitation thing. Like, and I was like, well. And then Mr. Moy arrived, and there was some kind of exchange in English-Chinese. And he said something like, yeah, he's okay. So I got to stick around. So next thing you know, Donna and I are going to this temple on a regular basis and Mr. Moy's helping her and I got to skip the details but let's just say that it was fucking blowing my mind like her goiter was going down her eye swelling was going down like it was what it kind was, of stuff were they doing for well, he was he was basically he had one of his experienced instructors showing her two foundation movements that she would do for an entire hour and and he had her do these movements and he was explaining to her that she had to learn these foundation movements and practice them and that in her case because she was sick she really had to like learn it and do it properly and then every so often in this first week and for the record I was told by everybody that they'd never seen him do it this often but on three separate occasions during this week he went up to her and he took her you know and basically started giving her what is a qigong treatment where he would take her you know she'd be doing some movement he'd just walk up to her and he would just take her body she'd be standing and he'd start 
poking his fingers into parts of her body like you know not nothing like you know in 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 her body like not her genital areas like it was all legit it was yeah. in front of a lot of people she was dressed everything and he's just whacking her like it's the weirdest thing like, like find it, different like pressure points and it, stuff it, i don't think it can be on. explained like because it's not yeah. your typical he's just he's whacking her and touching her and driving his finger like at one point he's had her he has her mouth open and he's got his fingers inside her mouth at one point he's whacking her throat like he she's kind of He's kind of holding her in one arm, and she's sort of in a back bend, and she's just completely surrendering, yeah. and he's just like hitting her tummy in this area and that area, and and driving his fingers like it's the weirdest thing. Like so, like while she's doing Qigong, no, she's just she, launch, no, she's just she, okay. he's just holding her, and she's just surrendering, and he's just and it lasts a matter of minutes, and then he just sort of stands her up on her two feet, and he just sort of settles her. And then he walks away. And he literally walks away and out of the room. And he did this three times to her. And I asked her later on those days what that was like. And she said to me that she could hardly put it into words. She said there were surges of energy moving through her. And you got to understand something. Donna is not a woo-woo, flaky person. She's an open-minded person. And even myself, like I'm, I'm an open-minded person, but I'm very grounded i'm very skeptical i don't i don't i don't jump on board with anything and i really highly value questioning things yeah and anyway it's very hard to explain but he did something to her it's sort of like jump starting it's like he was like the explanation was that he was opening things up in her in her in her and like her meridians and stuff he was opening things up and he was putting literally his chi giving her some blasts inside there okay and so Anyway, weeks go by. She's struggling because her family, you know, this is part of the problem with holistic healing is that you get all these pressures from your family and from other, you know, and so she's she doesn't know what to do because her family thinks she's nuts. Like, she's supposed to be getting an operation for a very serious condition. Was it already booked, like the operation? No, it wasn't booked, but, you know, she's stabilized by this medication, but her family thinks she's nuts, that she's at a temple with some Taoist monk you know, and, and, and she's getting pressure from her parents and her family and even from herself. She's like not sure what she's doing. And I'm saying to her, like, look, you're getting better. Like you have to decide. So she's noticing like significant results at this point. Oh, my God. She was blown away by how she felt that first week. Yeah. Like her heart rate was calmer. You got to understand something. She was stabilized by that medication. But hyperthyroidism, her heart could go up to 180 beats a minute. Yeah, like she, you know, she had swollen eyes. Her eye swelling was going down. I mean, I'm watching all this, and I'm just like Donna. This is mirac- like this is amazing. Like, and she was going with it, but then after about two, three weeks, she started to like, she started to like not know what to do. She started to waffle, and about a week after she was waffling, Mr. Moy actually through a translator said to her, "You're gonna need to make up your mind. You have to decide." what you want you know he could he just said that to her he said you got to decide like do you want to go get the operation or do you want to you know because you you don't he let her know like it's up to her right and she didn't know what to do for about three weeks she was just completely and i was just like what and i would try to give her space and stuff and eventually she left she went to ottawa and she came back and she said to me she said you know what i know i can heal with this but I feel like I'm just going to go do the operation 
and go back out west. And I was like, Donna, why don't you just like finish healing and then go out west? And yeah. she's like, yeah, but you know, I don't know. Like, I feel like if I let him help me, then I'm going to need to help other people. And I'm like, so what's wrong with that? And she's like, I don't know. And I'm like, well, listen, it's your choice. But Mr. Moy has not asked anything of you. There's no conditions here. You can let him help you. And you're basically helping yourself. He's just showing you how, how to help yourself. Anyway, long story short, she, after six weeks, she just decided to have the operation. But I had seen enough for me. Like, yeah, I mean, if you, I've had some patients with hyperthyroidism, and there's a lot of stuff that goes along with that. So, I mean, if she's experiencing profound results from uh, what she was following through the Qigong and Tai Chi. Well, she was doing mostly the foundation movements for the Tai Chi. Okay, yeah. She was doing what are called Danyus and Toyus. And she, Mr. Moy explained to her that she didn't have, because of her condition, she needed to just work on those two movements, which basically include all of the principles from the Tai Chi set. Yeah. This is Taoist Tai Chi. It's a little different than, Yen's, than, than Yang style or Chen yeah. style. Anyway, it's a very internal form. Often gets criticized because the organization is very large. But Mr. Moy knew what he was doing. And anyway, long story short, she leaves. Yeah. I stay. Didn't take long before I ended up moving into the center. I got very close to Mr. Moy. Um, to this day, like Mr. Moy was, you know, this was towards the end of his life. I was very close to him. I'm still learning from my time with Mr. Moy. Like, I cannot... We could do a whole pod. We could do like ten podcasts uh, about my time at the you're temple. Still like unpacking everything. Hey? I'm still, <laughs> I'm still, I'm still refining what I was exposed to. But let's just say that during the years that I was around him, I would work sales for the Toronto Star and then later the Globe and Mail. Um, eventually, anyway, I would work sales. I would teach Tai Chi as a rehabilitative therapeutic mo- pr- pr- practice. I taught it eventually. I was teaching in hospitals. I was teaching a special class for people who had HIV. I was teaching uh, people who we call them health recovery classes. <clears throat> so these were people who, these were classes with people with MS, Parkinson's, people recovering from strokes, people recovering from severe car accidents. These were people who had been told at one point by the physiotherapist there's nothing else they could do and these people wanted to go further and they came to the Taoist Tai Chi Society and they got enrolled in these special classes and I happened to be one of the instructors and I was learning so much it was blowing my mind that's not including what I was going through with my own body and it was just amazing time of my life like I was around all these senior instructors I was around Mr. Moy um he, he, you know, it was being around him it was the way he moved. It was the way he behaved because he wasn't much of a talker. And um, we were feeding the homeless. We were doing, and I was a volunteer instructor. It was, it was, it was an amazing organization, an amazing time in my life. I'm anyway, learning a lot about traditional Chinese medicine and food and just so much stuff and learning it through experience, not so much through books. And one of the things Mr. Moy really encouraged students to do uh, besides teach and help other people is because, you know, he used to say like that the, the qigong, the stretching, the tendon changing, the, the tai chi, all of that transformative, all of those what are called internal Taoist internal arts, all of the alchemical Taoist arts of healing and transformation. He used to say that's for you. But he used to say unless you cultivate 
selfless giving, unless you cultivate a selfless heart, and he meant cultivate like it's a lifelong thing. Like you don't just snap your fingers and become selfless. You cultivate it because you have to refine it. He used to say, if you don't cultivate that, you're not going to get very far with your personal practice. Yeah. And, and that was something that, you know, we were all discovering that, you know, and, and, and I'm still discovering that because let's face it, you know, ecocentrism, ecocentrism, centricism, and narcissism, you know, I'm not an extreme narcissist, but I think we all tend to focus on ourselves and you have to, to some extent, you've got to have a balance. It's like that famous quote from the Hillel, uh, there's a famous Jewish sage uh, from before the time of Jesus. He used to say, he was known to say, his quote is, if I don't take care of myself, if I don't take care of others, uh, no, here's the quote. If I don't take care of myself, who will? And if I don't take care of others, who am I? Oh, the chickens. We've got a, we got a yeah. timer going off for the chicken Take here. Take a pause. Okay. So we're back from our little break. And yeah, we were at the um, the temple uh, with Mr. Moy. <laughs> we should talk a little bit about him. But sounds like a very wise, caring man who taught you probably more than you could even explain in words. Uh, it sounds like you learned a lot at that temple. Yeah. Um, what, if you could like summarize it. Well, I would just say the top three things that you gained, top three valuable things you might have gained from your whole experience at the monastery with, with Mr. Moy. Top three. I don't really, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess what I, what I guess one, yeah, I guess I could say so, so number one, my time around Mr. Moy provided me with a foundation for optimizing my whole being, you know, and, uh, number two, like optimizing my being independent of interactions with, with say others, let's just say like when it comes to like working with my musculoskeletal system, working with my organs, working with my, my physiology, my mind, my spirit, Mr. Moy, my time around him. Cause he, it's, it's, you gotta understand something like he, I never treated Mr. Moy like he was my guru. I mean, I had incredible respect and love for him, but you know, he was, he was my teacher. Um, and anyway, so he provided me with a really thorough foundation. He also provided me with, and all of this was mostly through example and experience-based learning because Mr. Moy would teach you by showing you or by getting you to do something. And the second thing was selfless giving. And when I say selfless giving, I mean like in a healthy, balanced, appropriate way. I never saw Mr. Moy pity anyone. I came to different I came to see the difference between compassion and pity. They are not the same thing. Yeah. I, Mr. Moy was incredibly skilled at empowering people. He could challenge you. He could scold you if you were his student. Not in a malevolent way, always in a loving way. 
you know, he could somehow in weird ways kind of help you get over your ego self and get into your true nature. In, in Taoism, the, the goal of Taoist training is to cultivate your original nature. And selflessness, because it's sort of like that famous guru from India, I can't remember his name right now, Sri Rama something, Rama something. He was once asked, how do you treat others? This is a very famous guru from India. And he said, there are no others. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a pretty powerful concept, right? You know, but anyway, so you asked for three things. So one, I would say the foundation for like working with your physiology in a very complete way. And in a way that included like, it's not like, it's not like he gave me, it's like he gave me a good foundation. And part of that foundation is that it has no limits and that it's important to question things. And, you know, it's hard to put into words, but I would say one is more of the physical kind of what you can do for yourself, stretching, breathing. I mean, he didn't really teach us breathing practices, but like working with your physiology, stretching, self-massage, massaging movements, let's just say that kind of stuff, the, the Qigong, the, the yogic Qigong, Tai Chi type stuff. Number two is the art, the lifelong art of selflessness. And number three, I think, is no dogma. Like, you know, we're always going to, we're, 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 as humans, you know, and from a neuroscientific perspective, you know, we are, we, we are highly skilled. I mean, part of our, part of our being requires conditioning, like, you know, the way we sit, the way we walk, driving cars, if you're a goaltender, if you're a musician, like, there's tons and tons of stuff that we learn and becomes automatic. But it's when the automatic automatic thoughts, feelings and behaviors, if they're working for us, if they're if they're doing more good than harm, great. But it's when they start to hinder, impede our understanding, you know, it's when they get in the way of things. And that's what dogma is. It's yeah. like you know, and Mr. Moy would sometimes say, like, no dogma, you know, question things. So I would say those three things, if I had to say three things. That's good. Those are good points. Yeah. Yeah, he was an amazing. I mean, I, st- I, I still feel so, I mean, as you know, I, I anyway, I was going to say, like, you know, I pray and meditate regularly, and, and I, I don't know if spirits, like, I don't really care if spirits are just a figment of my imagination or if they're they're really, truly, it doesn't matter to me. I connect with the spirit of Mr. Moy regularly, you know, the spirit of my ancestors and stuff. Yeah. Um, And, uh, yeah, anyway, moving on. So, should I just keep going? Yeah, yeah. So, so eventually, Mr. Moy, you know, eventually... Life changes. Mr. Moy passed away in 1998. That was a big deal. We'll just skip all the details on that. Um, I'm still at the temple. Things are changing within the organization. All of the different boards of directors now, there's more ego. There's more power struggles. I mean, when he was alive, everyone just was that much more humble. 
I mean, he was the founder. Yeah. Now, I think people are struggling with their sense of responsibility, you know, and and there's more and more politics. There were always politics. This is a big organization. But, and I'm there, and, you know, what am I going to do with my life? You know, like, I mean, I'm, I'm, eventually I, I, I go back to university. And that was in part motivated by Mr. Moy. Even though I already had a background in human biology and physiology, Mr. Moy was very encouraging of people to not necessarily go to university, but he would always encourage instructors to study human physiology. He would say, like, you know, you're Westerners, like, study human physiology, like, learn about all these tissues and organs and systems, learn about them. And I went to University of Toronto. I mean, I was living downtown Toronto, and I'm at University of Toronto. I'm still living at the Temple um, down in Darcy Street in Chinatown. And I switch work. Um, so I'm working. I go, to, I go to school. I had saved up quite a bit of money for my sales work. And when my first year of university ended, I was in human physiology. I was in life sciences and loving it. And, uh, you know, cellular molecular biology, organic chemistry, and human physiology especially. It was, this was a major third year. Uh, this was like a big human physiology course. It was really, really, we would go intense into all the different systems. And um, by the time summer came around, I had to decide, well, am I going to go do more sales or something else? And sales pay, paid pretty good. But I don't know. I felt like I should do something different. And I wanted to cook. I already used to cook at the temple. Um, that was sort of one of my, my, my duties, one of my responsibilities. Um, and uh, I don't know. I wanted to cook. So that didn't really make much sense because I was making about 35 bucks an hour on average through my commission sales work. But then cooking would be like nine, ten, $11 an hour. But something inside of me, so next thing you know, I'm cooking. And uh, also, by the end of the summer, I decided I need to move out of the temple. And I moved not far. I moved uh, a few blocks north on campus. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I still had a key to the temple. And I'm, I'm living student co-op housing. And I'm going to the university. And... And I, and I switch jobs. I start cooking at this big residence, like at University of Toronto, one of the big residents. And it's just crazy. Like my week was crazy. I was working 35 hours a week in this big industrial kitchen and uh, going to school and starting to really stress out and um, not using any drugs, not, not smoking any weed. I hadn't smoked any weed since I arrived at the temple. I didn't feel a need for that anymore. But now I'm a little bit addicted to having to do it on my own. That became sort of my new thing. It's like, oh, I know so much from all my time at the temple and Mr. Moy. And I, 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 I know so much and I should be able to do everything. It's almost like a, a superhero complex. And I had this crazy schedule of work. And I was thinking about becoming a doctor and not because I really wanted to practice Western medicine because I wanted to help people. And I figured that that license would, would open doors. And, but anyway, the pressure started getting really crazy and I started developing like some real obsessive 
compulsive behaviors at first they seemed pretty benign and I was sleep deprived like I would literally sleep like three four hours a night night after night after night I would work in the kitchen I would do my 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 university stuff and I just was just driving myself like pushing myself and uh as much as I was an open-minded, not, 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 I was open-minded, but as much as I was an open, as much as I discussed things open-heartedly, the truth is that there was a lot of things that I kept to myself. And I wanted to be, a, you know, I wanted to deal with it on my own. And by December that year, the year 2000, like by January 2000, by the end of 1999, 2000, I had started having episodes of obsessive compulsive behaviors which were not good they were episodes they didn't hurt anyone but they were troubling and I couldn't tell at the time if they were just behaviors that were I had to do because of a a gut and an intuitive need I I couldn't tell at the time looking back I can say that they were completely fucked up but without getting to the details of all that let's just say that I started really struggling with my mental health and that underlying anxiety predisposition that had given birth to bulimia that had always been soothed through alcohol and then marijuana and soothed through climbing and soothed through the incredible environment at the temple and soothed through Tai Chi and all that well you know, I was trying to accomplish all this stuff and it was starting to, I was starting to fall apart and not talking about it with anyone because I was determined to figure it out and handle it on my own. And I almost quit my courses that, that in the year 2000 and all my courses were full year. And for January, February year 2000, I became pretty dysfunctional. Like I could go to work and cook, no problem. But when it came to my homework, my mind, like my ability to focus was so hampered. And then I didn't even know if I should do it anymore. And I started questioning everything. And come March, no, February, sorry, February, I was so behind. And then I started thinking maybe I should just quit these courses. And it was crazy. I went to my professor's asked for special permission to quit them because I was past the uh, the regular date and I didn't want to get penalized. They grant me special permission. I go home, realize what the hell am I doing? These are full year courses. I'm like three quarters in and I'm just going to quit? Fuck that. I go to my boss at the, at the kitchen, the residence, and I say, listen, I'm really fucked up. And I just quit my courses I asked for special permission to quit my courses but I'm realizing that it'd be better if I actually stepped back from cooking stopped working and just focused on my courses and they're like okay I mean you know so then I spend the whole weekend instead of working I spend the whole weekend trying to catch up on my courses and I go back to my professors with all this work I did and one of them the course was was all about academic research it was called the academic writing process. It was the hardest course. Half the course quit. And I went to him and I said, listen, 
And he was worried about me. And I said, listen, I know I came and I asked for special permission. I was so afraid he was going to get mad at me. I was afraid he was going to say, look, first you come for me for special permission. Now you want to go back in. And he just was so nice. And I went to him and I had a draft for an essay. The essay was going to be 60% of our note. It was a, a basically a research paper, like something you'd put in a scientific journal. Yeah. And I went to him with a first draft. I spent the whole weekend working on that and the cellular molecular biology course it was a similar project. And I went to both professors with something in my hand. And I said, listen, I'm really messed up. I don't know what to do. Would you be willing to look at this and tell me if you think I have a chance? And I was so afraid he'd get mad. So afraid. I even went to see a psychologist and explained how terrified I was. That, And, and anyway, I went. He took it. He said, I will do whatever I can to help you. He looked at it, got back to me next day, said, you've got something here you can work with. If you keep applying yourself, I see no reason why you can't. So that was it. I finished those courses. I went back to cooking that summer. I was cooking now. That summer I was cooking on these big boats in uh, Ontario, the Lake Ontario. Just, you know, t Toronto is, there's like a harbor and I was working on catering on these big boats. One of them was a huge sailboat. It was a lot of fun. And then I decided I needed to make some changes. And I decided I'm going to leave Toronto, go to Europe. I'm going to take a break from university. Um, I was glad I finished my course. I got an A in both those courses, A minus in both those courses. And I decided to go to Europe to visit my grandmother, my dad's mom. Um, I had always been so close to her as a child and I hadn't seen her. I hadn't seen any of the European family in over 10 years. I was pretty distanced from my parents too at this point in my life. I used to talk to them on the phone and stuff, but I only visited my parents like a couple of times since they got divorced. They got divorced in 1993. So it's 19, it's now it's the year 2000. Um, and, uh, let me just think here. Is it 2000 or 2001? I'm getting confused here. No, it's 2001. Sorry, I screwed up. So the obsessiveness started in December 2000. That's right. And 2001 is when I almost quit the courses but didn't. Summer of 2001, I'm working on the boats. Decide to go to Europe. September 2001, my plane ticket was booked. It was booked, I know the date, because it was three days after 9-11. Oh, yeah. And I flew out of Toronto. And I mean, the planes were all shut down on 9-11. But, yeah, my plane, I, our plane was, del was delayed. But it, I, it was an eight-hour delay, but it still flew out. And on September, whatever, three-day, 11 plus three is, uh, what is that, Fort? Is it three, three and 11 is uh, 14. 14. So September 14th, I leave Toronto. I go to France. I hang out with my grandmother, reconnect with her. I start traveling around France, reconnecting with all the family. End up in this small village where my sister was living, doing pottery. Stay there, cut wood, do odd jobs. Start studying for the MCAT, thinking I'm still going to become a doctor. Everything was going well, and then, I don't know, I got involved with this beautiful woman, but it was too fast. I was still really prone to anxiety. Next thing you know, I'm getting all obsessive and compulsive again. I'm starting to unravel again. I ended up in Paris, long story. 
It's really hard to talk about. She was pregnant. I was willing to help raise the child, but I wasn't prepared to commit to marriage. I just felt that I needed to get, I just wasn't prepared. She wasn't prepared to have the child unless she was in a committed relationship. It was terrible. It was the most nightmarish time in my life. I thought I was going crazy. She ended up having an abortion. I became suicidal. I'm in Paris. I had cousins in Paris, like like the age of my parents, like my, my dad's cousins. I'm just living in Paris, like hotel to hotel, spending my savings. It took six months. I was seriously suicidal for six months. Ended up cooking for this family, this Jewish family, like ultra-Orthodox Hasidic family. Not so orthodox that they had no contact with the outside world, like, but Hasidic family and cooking for them, getting to know Jewish culture. Anyway, ended up living in France from, ended up cooking and living on my own in Paris from 2002 to 2005. Did some hotel gigs here and there. Basically, my life became cooking. Um... I got past the depression and the suicidal stuff, but I just cooked. I just cooked. I cooked for 20 different caterers. I did everything I could to become like a chef and a sous chef. I did hotel gigs. I did con like I would do short contracts. So I was like basically a temp cook, chef, sous chef with 20 different caterers, making good money, learning incredible amounts of skills about cooking then I would take on these short gigs at hotels for a few months here and there for special occasions and restaurant one time for three months and it was kind of all linked to the work I was doing for the caterers um, I was still working on my own health with everything I'd learned at the temple and other things I was learning I was pretty freaked out by my mental health and I was just keeping it under wraps by basically, at that point in my life, I managed triggers. I did everything I could to try and not get stressed out with certain things. And otherwise, I'd end up obsessive compulsive. And yeah. as, as long as I was working 60 hours, 70 hours, 80 hours a week, I was fine. And as soon as I had a few weeks off, I'd start to become all obsessive compulsive. And I didn't quite understand what the hell was going on. And I went to see some psychologists and I started looking more in. I started going more and more into like learning about deep psychological therapy because I don't know. I, I, I mean, I knew so much, but I didn't know enough to not end up in these obsessive compulsive episodes, which were becoming more and more classic, like, like more I was becoming germaphobic, but only occasionally. It was very episodal. Anyway, I'll just skip a lot of details. 2005, I come back to Moncton with the intention of visiting, end up staying, fell in love with Jessica. We're dating. I'm not ready to commit to a future relationship, but whatever, I'm in Moncton. And being back in Moncton, this was the end of 2005. So 2005, 2006, I'm in Moncton. And being in Moncton after not living here for 15 years 
And being in these familiar surroundings with friends that knew me when I was in high school and being close to my dad, this all made it easier and easier and easier for me to deal with my mental health issues. Even though I would only experience these obsessive compulsive things in episodes occasionally, I was starting to, and I was starting to go see some psychologists and I was just starting to like delve deeper into it. And being back here where I was a kid was helping somehow. But it still took a few years before I did what's called exposure response prevention, which is a very classic behavioral approach to dealing with obsessive compulsiveness. And all I can say is that when I finally did that, it was the most nightmarish thing of my life, even more nightmarish. I mean, the suicidal period of my life was nightmarish. But when I would do exposure, exposure response prevention, which basically meant exposing myself to the very triggers that, that would bring on an intense, intense obsessive compulsive episode, and I would not follow through with the compulsion, and I would basically sit with thousands of obsessive thoughts moving through my brain, and the, the most intense panicked anxiety in my gut, my solar plexus, I felt like I was going to die, like I was going to ruin my life if I didn't follow through with the compulsion. And I would ride it out for 20 minutes. A couple times it took 40 minutes. And ride it out meant that it would actually eventually subside. And this, was a, this is the breakthrough of this kind of therapy because people who struggle with obsessive compulsiveness, they always follow through with the compulsion because that's what calms them down. But when you follow through, when you don't follow through with the compulsion and you allow yourself to sit with the crazy thoughts and intense feelings of terror and you sit with them, you don't do anything. You just experience it for 20 to 40 minutes and then it all goes away and it goes away without you having done anything. You're like, whoa. And this was the beginning of me starting to heal deep stuff, stuff that had never truly been addressed. Yeah, the Tai Chi and the Qigong and all that helped with so many things, but this stuff needed to be faced. So you're just basically like facing it face to face. That's basically what that's all about. Like being with it, like being with the most terrifying thoughts and feelings, you know, which let's face it is what good psychotherapy is when people do high doses of psilocybin or when people do like prolonged fasting or you know whatever it is or you go see a good psychotherapist or you do emdr or whatever good therapy brings you into experiencing that which is troubling you and you experience it and you experience it and experience it and eventually start to experience it changing for the better And anyway, from 2006 till 2009, I was experiencing more and more deep healing. Didn't, you know, and I kind of skipped this part, but like back in France when I was catering and stuff, I picked up the habit of smoking hash again. And in Moncton, up until this exposure response prevention, I was still using it. I used it very minimally. Like I would have like a hit or two a day. But with the exposure response prevention, the really deep, 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 deep 
predispositions for anxiety were literally changing. It was the most, it was neuroplasticity. It was conscious changing of deep wirings within my nervous system. And from 2006 to 2009, I just healed more and more and more. And everything else, the musculoskeletal system, the digestion, that everything I knew about those systems were also being enhanced by this deeper healing, if you'd like to put it that way. Um, 2009, you know, is when I turned 40. And by that time, I had been involved with Nadine for about two years. And that was a very, again, loving relationship, um, you know, but no commitment on my part. And for two years, we were together on and off, mostly because I would break up every so often. And then after two years, 2009, you know, we, we really were broken up. And she started moving on with someone else. And I went through this crazy revelation period of my life. It was just the most amazing experience. No drugs, no alcohol. I mean, alcohol had not been part of my life for a long time. But nothing except just experiencing my heart and vulnerability. And I was experiencing stuff in my heart region of my body I mean, it was just crazy. Like, and I would be talking to Armand and people that I trusted and people that I, and I'd be opening up about things that I'd never opened up about since I was like four. Like, it's like, I can't hurt, it's hard to put into words, but let's just say that things happened that resulted in me feeling super open hearted and understanding that. I had been I had a tendency since the age of four to keep certain things to myself. And I just took that keep it to me yourself box and just opened it. Not with everybody, but with a lot of people. I was prepared to tell anybody anything about myself at that point. And I was practicing vulnerability and I started learning about Brene Brown. I started listening to Susan Johnson, Dr. Susan Johnson, not Johansson, but Susan Johnson who's uh wrote the book hold me tight um she's a, a psychologist and a professor and a researcher and she's really into emotion she's the founder of emotional focus therapy and i just started learning more and more and more about like i don't know like the the neuroscience of emotion and what works and what doesn't work and um at least statistically speaking and practicing vulnerability and authenticity and I'd been in Moncton at that point for four years. It was the longest I had stayed in one place. You know, Toronto, that's not true. Toronto, I had been there for five years. But Moncton, four years, had been, the aside from Toronto, the longest I'd been in one place in the last 15 years at that point in my life. And it was my hometown. And I don't know, like my pride and everything just started getting put more into appropriate context, like, and uh, my willingness to let people help me, you know, not in a dependent way, but help me help myself. I was just more and more clear about that. And uh, it was amazing, amazing. And I was starting to, and, and that's when I started to experience happiness, like real happiness. It was amazing. I have chills thinking about it, like, and um I don't know. I mean, I had already been the, I had already started up like the Earth Day event by then. And I don't know. I just became more and more like I was catering and 
all of the health stuff, like, like I would help anyone with a massage, teach them how to stretch, teach them whatever I knew when it came to musculoskeletal stuff or food or cooking or anything. I would help people, but I always did it on the side. I always did it, you know, my, my teacher, my original teacher is a monk. Like, I just did it. And my way of earning a living was catering. Yeah. And uh, in Moncton. And so next thing you know, you know, I, and I was also very, you know, uh, I had started up the, the Earth Day event. And so being part of community and giving of myself was just, you know, I, 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 I practiced that in various ways. And I had a good balanced life and I was happier and happier. And I was just my understanding of my inner being and the outer world, the outer being was getting better and better and life was just better and better. And didn't take long before, you know, Botsford station opened up and there's just more and more community minded people I was connecting with and my cooking skills would work out great. And, you know, when it comes to community activities and stuff and Next thing you know, I was the full-time, I basically was running all the catering at La Terrasse, making really good money. Um, well, I kind of skipped a part. In 2011, there was the whole safe water thing. So my experience, my communication skills, my overall ability to manage my health, my, my stress, um, which at that point was really great, um, were, were, were better than ever. And my my care and love for Moncton and, and community were at an all-time high, and I was a part of Moncton. I was a part of community here, many communities. Through the Earth Day event, I had come to know many of the politicians and counselors and mayors, and it's just hard to put into words. But in 2011, I went to a meeting to learn about the dilemma, the potential uh, uh, you know, it's still a controversial issue, but I learned about the potential chronic long-term effects of fluoride and why it's probably not a good idea to add fluoride to public water. Now, as I say this, there's probably a lot of people thinking like, oh, here we go, conspiracy theory. But look, I went to a meeting. I heard about the issue. I went off. I took my research skills started doing research. I looked at both sides of the issue. I looked at what the public health and dental associations had to say. I looked at what the critics, you know, the PhD critics, not the conspiracy YouTube stuff. I looked at what PhDs in toxicology, physiology, um, uh, you know, what else? Uh, Toxicology, human physiology, immunology, uh, dentistry. There's a small percentage of dentists that disagree with water fluoridation. Um, biochemistry. Biochemistry was big. I was looking at what the PhDs in these fields had to say when it came to why they didn't think that it was good, why they thought people should minimize their exposure to fluoride. Minimize. And the more I did this, the more I came to agree with that it's better not to put it in the water and that even from an ethical perspective, putting something in the water for the sole purpose of having a medication effect on the public just didn't seem right. You can't control control the dose. It's just, there were just so many reasons not to do it. And gradually I became more and more involved in a campaign. And by the summertime of 2011, I realized that it was much more complicated than I originally thought. It was a very political issue. 
there were people from Health Canada and New Brunswick Health. Basically, the national, provincial, public health and dental associations were sending representatives to City of Moncton and Dieppe in review, trying to convince them that we were a bunch of nutcases and that they should continue to fluoridate. And I was basically halfway up a mountain that I, th- I thought I was going to be at the top of the mountain. I realized I was halfway up the mountain. And I made a decision that year to give it everything I had. And I was blessed with the collaboration of PhDs across the country and the states that mentored me and helped me not only better understand the science of how fluoride can affect different aspects of human physiology, but I was also mentored in, you know, effective engagement, compassion, respect. You know, I would watch videos by Martin Luther King and and Gandhi and realize like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to be very respectful because if I'm militant, if I take my anger and my frustration and I, I approach decision makers with that, it's not going to work. And besides, I've always really valued um, freedom to think and I've always really valued um, being allowed to make up my own mind. So I took all the information that I was learning and organized it and organized it and refined it and refined it and basically took, I basically researched the data so that I could refine it and refine it and refine it. And I, I was very, very adamant that I would approach decision makers, counselors, mayors, whatever, with the information, with the intention to just please have, I would just ask them to consider it. I didn't ask anyone to agree with me. I wanted people to simply evaluate the issue. And I learned so much. And they eventually voted to stop fluoridating. And, you know, from there, I don't know, I I went to Seattle and Portland for a couple months, started making peace with my mom's uh, husband, my stepdad, because we had a real issue. That was all catalyzed by sweat lodge ceremonies. It's around this time of my life where I, I got introduced to sweat lodge ceremonies. So 2012, I become like the full-time caterer for La Terraz. I'm making really good money. I'm working a lot, but I'm making really good money. Um, I'm, I'm uh, going to sweat lodge ceremonies, which for me really fit into my overall uh, principles and values about self-cultivation. Um, you know, it didn't take long before I was, you know, going pretty much once a week. Um, so much learning, so much learning from Noel Melier and, and, and different, just the teachings, you know, which for me were very parallel to whatever I had experienced with the Taoists and the Buddhists and the Confucius and what I had learned from the Vedic teachings from India. Like they were all parallel and they were also parallel with neuroscience, which I was still learning. I was still studying neuroscience and human physiology. Like there was all these parallels and I was like, wow, like this is, this is what I want. I want to hone in on the common denominators, the, the very core principles that, you know, the seeds, the, the seeds that give birth to these different belief systems and practices that are able to, you know, um, help people cultivate their health in a very measurable way. And so that's just where I was at, you know. By the time 2014 rolled around, I was tired of all the time I had to put into catering. I had saved up quite a bit of money and I decided, you know what, it's 2014. I've been 
you know, I got my medical school or my, my university background in human physiology, neuroscience. I got my ongoing studies in neuroscience and human physiology. I got all this ancestral wisdom stuff from Taoism and Buddhism and Confucianism, all experience-based. I got increasing amount of knowledge and, and, and experience-based practices from the First Nation people. Um, and every time I helped someone, you know, it, it, if they were compliant, the, the results were good and they were quick, like relatively speaking, you know, like, and I thought, fuck it, I'm going to stop catering and I'm going to start to make myself available to coach and counsel. And I didn't know how I was going to do that, but I was going to do it. And <laughs> I ended up doing like so many sessions with people for free. Like I wasn't making any money, like, but people were getting better and I was working with single mothers on welfare and this and that. And sometimes I get paid and sometimes I didn't get paid and I didn't really care. And I kind of forgot to mention that I had made a trip to Israel and Palestine in, in the year 2013 and I wanted to go back. So I went back in 2015. And so, you know, 2015, I go to Israel and Palestine, I spent two months over there and I'm really blown away by all the people over there that are working towards peace. You know, the, all these Arab Israelis and Palestinian Israelis and I went to the Palestinian territories and I met all these Jews and Arabs and they were all into like health and healing and 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 and, and social healing and reconciliation and came back to Canada 2015 I'm like fuck I'm gonna go live in Israel and Palestine and see what I can do over there and oh man so you know I'm just kind of like making my way puttering about helping people word of mouth whatever ways I can. And I'm still working a lot of myself too. Like, I mean, for me, that's like the foundation. Like, you know, I got to be able to walk my talk and my, my, you know, everyone's got health issues. Like my, my health wasn't perfect. It was pretty kick-ass. Like I was, yeah. I was, you know, it was a few years ago. So I was in my late, I was my late forties and everyone thought I was 30 something. And I was, you know, playing ultimate Frisbee and living life. And 2016 rolls around. I was supposed to go back to Israel, Palestine. Next thing you know, city councilors are telling me that the that the, there's a new push to put the fluoride back in the water, and I'm like, what? And huh. then then I had to make this big decision, like, because I'm supposed to leave. I had everything, you know, I was working on leaving. And 2016, 2017, I make a very difficult decision. It took me three weeks to make the decision. I decide to stay and spend my own money to work on keeping fluoride out of the water. And it was harder than ever because the pressures were much greater this time around. And that's the year that I built the, the website, Safe Water Moncton. We had a GoFundMe campaign that did raise some money to help me, but you know, it still cost me more than I made. And I learned a lot again, I learned a lot, but I really, really, pushed it that year and ended up grinding my teeth at night and eventually got a night guard and, but I no cavities but I I really the grinding really exposed a lot of my teeth to the dentine and anyway by the time that was all done safewatermoncton.com if people want to know the details I was more and more ready to go doing more and more work with people. But you gotta understand, like when I'm working on the Earth Day event, when I'm working on Safe Water Moncton, like there's no time to couch counsel people. Like eventually I go to Israel. There, 
all I did was coach and counsel people. I had regular clients. I didn't have that many, but I had enough to make money. And that was cool, you know, seeing again the feedback, the results, very encouraging. Um, you know, people with digestive issues, people with neurological issues, people with musculoskeletal issues. I get back to Moncton 2018 to visit and help with the Earth Day event. Uh, sorry, 2019, this year that we're in now. And I'm still here. And the summer was a very busy summer, working up at a youth camp, uh, troubled uh, First Nation youth. Well, young First Nation youth. And, and anyway, working professionally as you know, helping people with self-development, whether it's musculoskeletal, whether it's, you know, we're going to talk about, I guess, a little while, like cold exposure training, whether we're, working, we're, whether we're using the cold in a therapeutic way, the heat in a therapeutic way, some kind of meditative self-hypnosis, like stillness practice, like going within, you know, without, like in a sitting down meditative practice, whether it's, you know, stretching, self-massage, dynamic movement, whether it's food consultation to help people better, you know, choose foods that are right for them in accordance with their tastes and their affordability, their finances. Like, it doesn't matter to me, you know. I, I usually sum it up to, you know, I, I do everything I can now to provide people with customized, principle-based practices that are customized to help them optimize their sleep, the way they start their day when it comes to some kind of mind-body practice, the way they hydrate, the way they eat, and the way they deal with difficult emotional experiences, thoughts, feelings, and stress. That's what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. It sounds like you're entire lifetime from birth till to this date was you cultivating you know knowledge and wisdom through these experiences so that you could uh now you can bring forth and share what you learned in whatever way you can to others who are willing to to listen it's it, been a long a lot of training i guess yeah, yeah. it's a lifetime of training you know it also sounds like to me like one of your specialties if you want to even call it that um, is taking on really big tasks that not everybody is willing to do or even has the capability to do like dealing with that safe water Moncton that's like a, a classic example of uh, David versus Goliath in a way you know you're up against like big you know dentists from who are really supporting fluoride and so on. And then also most recently, which we could talk about another time is, uh, your work and due to your values, helping to at least try to get people out of a local pyramid scheme that had been happening and, and so forth. So for me, I think from my observation, it looks like you're really good at taking on these big, tasks that not everybody is capable of doing along with also working with individuals but um so yeah it's exciting to see the work that you're going to be doing continuing forward um 
curious to see is what it's going to be. Do you have any plans of what you want to do? Well, yeah. In fact, my plans are a lot like yours. I mean, like you were telling me earlier tonight about how you've managed to uh, <clears throat> hire and, and, you know, it sounds like you've got a combination trade for par- partial trade for services and, and partial you're, you're paying someone to design a website for you. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're starting your podcast stuff and I mean, like, you know, you're getting certified as a coach and I mean, I, I also at this point, you know, really would like to get an online, like I'd like to like a website, a YouTube channel. Um, not because I want to make money off YouTube, but let's face it. I mean, if I'm going to sustain, if I'm going to earn, like I want to help anyone. I don't want money to ever be a deciding factor whether or not I'm going to help someone. And when I say help, I always mean specifically help them help themselves. Like that's very important to me. Um, but if, if I'm going to help someone help themselves, I don't want money to be a deciding factor. At the same time, I mean, if I'm not earning a living, I'm not able to help people who may not necessarily be able to afford to, you know, help me pay my bills. So let's face it, you know, I've been dabbling with coaching and consulting now for a few years. And if we want to make money with that, I mean, corporations, banks, um, like institutions like government, schools, I mean, they have budgets that are increasingly including funds for helping their employees with their personal health, mentally, physically, emotionally, you name it. And let's face it, in the year 2019, 2020, if you don't have a website and you don't have videos, that's like the new business card. I mean, you can get, I, I, ha, I do get clients through word of mouth, but I'm going to get more, it's going to be easier to get clients through having a good online presence. Yeah. And I also have content that I want to share. At the same time, I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll eventually get more into it. But to be honest with you, making videos by myself, it's something that, ugh, I mean, maybe the more I do it, like when I do it, it's okay. But I'd rather be with people. Like I'd rather be teaching a workshop. I'd rather be working with someone one-on-one than making a video by myself. If I had some people to make the videos with me, that would be definitely more fun and, oh, yeah. more, and more motivating. So I guess at this point in my life, I'm, you know, because I've been, because I have the skills, like I have skills to make a website. I know I can do it. I've done it. I have skills to make videos. I'm still learning about technology and editing and all that. But I know I can learn it. The only thing is that I really want to collaborate i want to be part of a team and even with safe water moncton or earth day even though i did most of the work i had a team i had all kinds of people to collaborate with and you know so even though now my quote unquote educational you know empowering health empowering self-development business is going to be profit it's going to you know like I, i have regular rates and a sliding scale fee structure but 
I, I really am looking, I'm really praying and looking, my radar is up, like I'm putting the word out, like I'm looking for people who want to collaborate with me, who want to help me with, who want to be part of the kind of content, it's not even help me, like, because I'm more than happy for other people, like we could even share the website, like, who want to put out similar content, like, who agree about the kinds of things I want to put out there when it comes to food and eating habits and mentality and attitude and, you know, mind-body practices. I'm looking to be part of a team. Um, and, you know, eventually in this long-term vision, you know, there's going to be a center, ideally more than one center. Like, I'd love to help establish, like, you know, these self-cultivation centers that have, like, ice ice baths and wet saunas and like multi-purpose workshop spaces and a learning kitchen where people can come together and you know really learn about all these different ways of biohacking and optimizing physiology like like the, my website i already own the domain name so i own the domain name optimalphysiologytraining.com and i usually call what i do optimal physiology training and I use the word physiology very intentionally yeah. so where I'm at right now it's developing appropriate online uh, presence putting out appropriate content the reason I say appropriate which is a word I say a lot is because honestly when it comes to health fitness people online including many of the ones that I really appreciate. Like I love Ben Bickman and Ben Greenfield and Peter Atia, And I love the podcast that Tom P Bilio puts out and Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan and, you know, I, and Paul Saladino. Like I'm a big fan of Paul Saladino. Um, but I just don't want to spend all my time online. And I really want to make sure that any social media or any videos that they are basically just making it easier for people to connect with me yeah. or anyone else that I'm collaborating with because I don't want to just take the path of like maximizing money from YouTube videos. Like I don't want to, I don't want to get into the whole clickbait, uh, the whole clickbait phenomena, right? Which is, super prevalent i mean it would be so easy like you know to just go that path but i don't want to take that path like so i really want to make sure that whatever i put out online is really something i genuinely 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 believe is a value um and not just taking advantage of that oh it's got the right catchphrase and oh it's got the right you know because you look at a lot of it out there and it's like wow you know, like, okay, so so this theme is happening now, so we'll just put this title and it'll catch everyone's attention, you know? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm very much still at a startup phase. Well, it sounds like we share a lot of similar visions. Like, I, I've had a lot of, like, all every basically every idea that you've said is ideas that I've already had and also other people I know, too. So I think we live in a world where you know in order to function well as a society we have to collaborate so i think this is the point where we're at so i mean looks like we're it's time to work together on these things well yeah it's funny working together i mean if you look at it humans i mean working together can be like anything it can be it's powerful first of all people 
often are more effective when they're part of, you know, a, 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 you know, people, not always, but can be more effective when they're part of a group. But that's not necessarily a good thing. Like you look at the public health, you look at all these organizations that I'm quite critical of, corporations, oil companies, they're fucking effective, right? Armies, armies are incredibly effective. So collaborating is a human thing. I mean, we evolved, you know, I'm big into evolutionary biology and archaeology and anthropology. And I mean, we are wired to work together. And this individualistic phase that has been really birthed from the industrial revolution. Um, I think what you're saying, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. Like, I guess what I think what you're saying is more and more of us who were born into the individualism culture are realizing, wow, let's get together and collaborate because that's going to help bring our dreams and back, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I've heard so many people talk about this center idea and uh, not as much people talking about like the specific things that we like to do, like ice baths and uh, coaching and stuff like that. But a lot of people have this vision of a self-center that helped that is basically focused on helping people in whatever way is possible in existence um, in many different ways. And uh, so it's like, why not collaborate? Because like you said, there's all these separate people like Ben Greenfield and Paul Saladino and all these people who have different podcasts and who even like offer different uh, coaching services and have centers themselves to help people. Well, wouldn't it be more effective if, we just got together us like-minded people and created something um, like what we're imagining rather than just having each having our own separate thing. Why don't we just collaborate? You know? Yeah. And I mean, I guess that's what's happening. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, we're, we're like-minded people are coming together and people like you and I, I mean, the, from what I know about you, you know, I'm 50, you're 28 but you still somehow, you know, for whatever reasons, share a lot of my ethical values, I guess. Because that's where that's often ethics like like you talked about the the the, the pyramid scheme, you know, and I mean that can't really compare that to Safewater Moncton, but yeah, I guess <laughs> for I guess for a month and a half, I was incredibly concerned about people, you know, who are very dear to my heart and other people and I wanted to do whatever I could to, again, not convince anyone of anything, but to bring information. Like when, you know, I, I always use three, there's three qualities that I feel um, decide whether or not information is going to be of any use. And when, when it comes to something that's contradictory, like when it comes to the pyramid scheme, you had some people claiming that it was actually an ethical uh you know, uh, a totally ethical way for people to come together and support each other um, mentally, emotionally, and financially. And that it was just a way, it was just win-win. Like people were going to come together and everyone's going to benefit. And, you know, money, like anything tangible, like coconuts and oranges are things we can measure. And when you can measure something, you can use mathematics to to you know when you're measuring large numbers and organizing large numbers well numbers mathematics and as you know we looked at it and said whoa 
people will only make money in this at the expense of people losing. And the vast majority of people will lose. Therefore, it is not ethical. And when you take, in that particular case, when you take concepts of selflessness, community support, you know, and you have, you combine it with like retreats and meditation, like all these practices that are so sacred, so, um, so important. If you, if people don't like the word sacred, like, you know, so, so, so special. And then you mix it up with a greedy, exploitative, uh, money organizing enterprise, which not only isn't ethical, but is actually illegal. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, for a month and a half, I did everything I could to try and help people better understand and then so that they can make their own decisions. But what I was going to say is that, you know, when it comes to trying to decide, when it comes to a contradictory issue like fluoride or this food or that food or this way of working out or that way of working out or whatever, like philosophies, ideas, when we're trying to decide what makes more sense? I always say, well, what we need, three things we need. We need the most relevant, the least biased, and the most verifiable data, evidence, information. Yeah. If it's relevant, okay. Is it, how, how biased is it? What, you know, how biased is it? And how verifiable is it? And if we're going to use any kind of scientific research, we have to ask, is it published? Okay. Where is it published? How does that scientific journal rank in the now very large hierarchy of scientific journals? Okay. What were the controls like for that particular study? How many variables did they control for? What was the bias level of the researchers? And once we assess once we assess things you know and if we have that under if we have that approach now a lot of people think well i don't have time for that it's like well you don't have to you know devote you can devote an hour a week for a month to try and understand something because if it comes to eating when it comes to financial major financial decisions we'll spend a bit of time investing it because it's going to have consequences that can last like decades if not your entire life, like you get to know someone, you know, I've counseled so many people, especially women who've had really horrible, abusive experiences with relationships, you know, and we all know how it works. Like we meet someone in the beginning, lots of chemistry, lots of attractiveness. I mean, maybe not always the case, but most of the time in, in the times we live in, there's the honeymoon phase. Everyone's on their best behavior. Then we start to really get to know them and oh my god they're controlling they're jealous they're um, a slob oh they're uh, you know insensitive whatever and it's like when we start to get to know them better but we've always already bonded and the sex is really good now it's really hard to move on and you know there's so many things that you know if we could like, it's funny because if you look at humans, like we're not like horses and, 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 uh, you know, uh, we're not like a lot of animals. We don't, we're not born and we don't come out of the womb ready to walk and run around. 
we need a lot of nurturing. You know, from a neuroscientific perspective, our brain is not finished its initial, initial conditioning until we're 25. So our frontal lobe, which is so important for compassion, you know, all the heart oriented ways of all the heart based values, compassion, empathy, sincerity, authenticity, courage, that's all frontal lobe dependent, you know, foresight, having an idea of the impact of our decisions. And uh, it's not fully developed until we're 25. We can keep developing it and rewiring it, but it's not done until we're 25. And our impulsivity, our, our potential for impulsivity and compulsion, oh, that's running high right from the get-go. And it's important. But I mean, it's funny, like, you know, it's, it's really funny how when we're, we're trying to better understand something, you know, it's the emotional, the, we, 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 identity politics, like most people who think fluoride is good, just think it because they trust their dentist, their doctor, their association, their professor, you name it. Most people who think that fluoride is bad, they just don't think it's good because they don't trust their doctor, they don't trust the government, <laughs> they watch a bunch of YouTube videos or whatever. So when you really want to understand like the nuances and get really accurate, you know, then you need to spend some time learning and questioning things and and having the courage to step outside your tribe, you know. If you grow up in a white supremacist neo-Nazi community and you're going to even attempt to consider that, you know, people of color or people of other religions might be just as intelligent, just as you name it, as, you know, basically go beyond the racism, well, man, that's going to be pretty daunting because you're going to need to, like, you're going to need to be willing to break away from these bonds, right? And humans are interesting because we're all born quite dependent in many, many, many ways. I mean, and then we start to develop independence. And if we're fortunate enough we can come to recognize the value of what I call interdependence. And that's when we can really, like, really collaborate and connect with others in a very free-flowing way. It's like, I'm going to connect with your association. I'm going to connect with you guys. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do it because I agree with the goal, the mission, whatever, Intellectually, I agree with it, the, with the cause, if you'd like, or the mission. And emotionally, I, I click with you guys and there's chemistry. But I know that if things get really weird at one point, I'll have what it takes to move on. I'm not going to get stuck. A lot of people avoid commitment and connecting now because they're afraid they're going to get stuck again. Yeah. You know? A lot of people, I think, are kind of still in that independent individualistic phase. And, and you know, I think it's great that you already, because it took me a long time. It took me a long time to fully understand the power, the benefit, and the hazards, what you need to cultivate to be able to truly start to 
engage in an interdependent way, you know, where it's like, I'm going to be, I'm going to engage in devotion and know that I'm not going to get stuck. You know, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. But you know, why don't we talk a bit about like, you talked about like ice baths and stuff. We, like, should we talk a bit about, I don't know, should we get into, or have we been going too we, long we here? Should, we should talk about that. But I think now we'll, uh, should tie it me. off. Yeah, we'll tie it off because I'm, I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was good though. So thank you very much. Well, I hope we do good it again because uh, I'd I'd love to have some more conversation, and I feel I feel yeah. like we should have some more conversation in the future where I don't do so much of the talking. Like, if you want, let's do a podcast where you get to tell your story. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> and then maybe that should be our next one. Yeah. Could you be, do yeah. your story. I'll ask you some questions. You do most of the talking and sharing. You know. And then I think it'd be great if we then got, we could do some podcasts where we talk more about our transformation experiences and talk about maybe we focus in on like the food aspect. Yeah. Like the musculoskeletal stuff. Zoom in on certain subjects. Yeah. Zoom in on like, because you and I, you've been through a lot of transformation. I mean, like, like my, I mean, I don't know if we should tell people now, but like, let's just stay tuned because when Jordan talks about his transformation, you know, it's going to be pretty heavy. Like, and, and I skipped a lot of details too, but I mean, we both have been through really measurable, like people look at me today. They go, wow, you're in so much, you're such great shape, your skin, your, your muscles. You know, I did some nude modeling uh, last week for this life drawing course, you know? And I mean, like, you know, my body's flexibility, muscle tone overall physiological function is just so good and really statistically exceptional for my age but what most people don't even know is that it's way better than it was 10 15 years ago like when i was 35 if you if my 35 year old was here version of myself i could kick his ass like you know like like and and that's that's so important that you know transformation it's not just an intellectual woo woo psychological thing like emotion is important but like physically like you know biohacking growing younger biologically you know whether you pull it off for the rest of your life or not i don't know but it's so interesting that the way we think our attitude which is why for me meditation and prayer is so important. You know, the, the, the chemicals that are catalyzed and secreted, the ca- chemicals that are produced and distributed inside our body that are done so as a result of thinking, there's such a range between toxicity and benefit. The way we think and feel and behave, like, Never mind behavior. The way we think and feel is so powerful, so important for some kind of internal meditative prayer, intentionality, self-hypnosis practice. And then from there, you know, what you eat, the decisions you make, the behaviors you engage in with food, the relationship that each of us are going to cultivate with food, not just what we eat, but how we eat it. The relationship we're going to cultivate with 
the way we touch our body, self-massage, the way we move our body, stretching and dynamic movement, that relationship, you know, the, the potential for, for, for incredible states of experience is just, you know, or the opposite, right? Neglect movement too much, over, over move, over, you know, indulge too, engage too much in certain postures, sit at your desk too long, stare at your computer too long. Whatever too long is, is subjective. But go, you know, if you, if you neglect, if you overuse and whatever you are overusing and or neglecting will by overuse means that it is causing impediment and hindering overall your overall state of being and you know same thing with everything right so we want to we want to be like honing in on these basic principles that are underlying first nation traditions vedic traditions chinese traditions you know we want to hone in on that stuff so that no matter what foods we happen to be exposed to we can make the best choices with regards to like you said being our better version of ourselves in an imperfect way in a in a in a way that we know we're never going to be perfect right in yeah, a loving always, way always growing always learning there's always more to do <laughs> yeah in a humble way you know balancing our courage and strength with humility and anyway it'd be cool if we did some podcasts where we get your story and then eventually we can talk a lot about food because food let's face it i don't know if you agree i want to ask you something if you were to if you were to say like when it comes to sleep hydration um meditation food and exercise which would you say are the easiest ones for people to work with and which would you say are the most challenging most which are which are the ones that have the most contradictions out there the most contradictions yeah like when it comes to sleep like hydration like there aren't a lot would you say there's a lot of contradictions like personally i feel that med i feel that meditative mental emotional practices diet and exercise i feel that those are the ones that are the most contentious and almost like religious it's like no you got to do it this way no you got to do it this way no you're wrong no you're wrong whereas sleep people are like yeah you need they, sleep they just do it they don't really think about it but i mean if you tell people like listen or don't man, do it <laughs> if you if you tell people listen the more you sleep in darkness the better it's going to be for you the more time you have before like the more the if you give yourself time between eating and sleeping that's going to free up your blood you know it's a good habit try to sleep in darkness try not to eat a couple hours before you go to sleep at least not a lot of food um try not to have any lights allowed in your room use a night mask or uh blinds try to keep the temperature in your room as cool as you can as long as you're comfortable and able to fall asleep you know i think Try to try to use a blue light blocker on your screens and maybe even glasses to block with the blue light so that your brain's not getting stimulated. I think most people are not going to argue too much with that. If you tell people, listen, water's really important. Try to you know sip water so that you're hydrating your body. But I think that when it comes to like self massage techniques or stretching, you know, or exercise, like especially exercise, that's where it gets like very 
uh, competitive. It was like, no, you should do, uh, you should do this. You should do that. No, this yeah. is not good. No, this is not good. You know. And then when it comes into food, I think food is the one that's the most contentious. It's like, no, you got to be is, vegan. Yeah. No, you got to be this. No, you got to be that. No. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, I think you we know? can get into the both sides of those things and the contentiousness of them. But I'm, yeah, let's end it right here. Yeah, and, let's uh, do it. We'll talk another time. Thanks for coming on, man. Well, thank you, buddy. You're very welcome. It was interesting to hear your story, and I'm looking forward to dig deeper and take a closer look at some of the things we mentioned today. We are, man. And we're mm-hmm. going to get into some practices together, too. Absolutely. Yeah. All right.